Good morning. My job is to bring some life and excitement into the service as it's a little warm, and that's why the lights are down, and we sang some songs that were theologically rich, but somewhat solemn, and so my hope is to hear back from you. It is absolutely okay to say, can I get a witness? Amen! You can do that, and you can testify, and I'm excited for what is, we're going to experience over the next few moments as we continue in the service. We are in the second week of, what is it you do here? That's the tone that I hear when I read this. And last week, we spoke about the why behind every what of what we do at Church of the Valley. And while I highly recommend you listen to that message, if, if you hadn't heard it and you want to know specifically the why behind what we do here at COV, but I'm also going to spoil it for you. The why behind what we do is because Jesus is alive. That is the why. Now, make a note to listen to the message if you haven't listened to it, because we unpacked the truth, and it was a lot of fun and super important for our community to be reminded of. Today, we talk about one of the main things we do as a community, especially here on Sunday mornings, but also at other times throughout the week and in our lives, even in our own homes, which is teaching. But not teaching just anything, not giving a spiritual TED Talk, or 10 reasons you can be a better person that equal an acronym that spells out, I am a winner. No, what we mean about teaching is we teach the Bible. We teach the word. That is what we do here. We wanna teach this, the 66 books that make up the one book that we know as the Holy Scriptures, both what is known as the Old Testament, which is Genesis to Malachi, and the New Testament, which is Matthew to Revelation. 66 different letters written over 1,500 years by 40 different authors on three different continents in three different languages telling one story, the story of the redemptive work of God by grace through faith in Jesus Christ. So if you came in here and didn't know we were a Christian gospel church, welcome. That's what we do here, and that's what we're about. And while the Bible can be seen incorrectly as a few different things, sometimes as a rule book, or maybe a map unto one's life, or perhaps, unfortunately, in some cases, as hate speech, or a book of how to be a better person. We really, really, really want to make known at Church of the Valley that we do our darndest to exegete this book, meaning we want to find all that we can in this book that points us to Jesus, to help us know Jesus better, helps us grasp and engage with the triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Now, why do we teach the Bible? Well, for some of us, that might be somewhat of a silly question, but for years in churches, in and outside of America, there has unfortunately been more of a focus possibly on how to be a better human being rather than God's ambassador. And so we teach the Bible to point out what it means to be God's ambassador, to know the Lord Jesus Christ and to grow in him. So Jesus says in John chapter 8, he says in John chapter 8, verse 31, to the Jews who had believed him, Jesus said, if you hold to my teaching, you are really my disciples. Then you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. And Jesus is speaking to those in his context who had believed him or really, who had believed in him, who had believed his testimony of who he is, which is the Messiah, the Christ. 
And those who believed had the opportunity to hold on to his teachings, which doesn't mean perfect obedience. Let me say that again. It does not mean perfect obedience. Ain't none of us doing that right. But a belief in the teachings that change our mind about this world and the spiritual realm. And those who would hold on to these teachings, who would believe these teachings, according to Jesus, would be set free. To be set free is to have freedom. A freedom spiritually that makes life so much better because our freedom means we are not enslaved to our sin or to the cravings of our earthly nature. Now, we're going to get real, real quick, all right? I have shared my testimony in so many different places, so many different contexts, and in front of so many people. In fact, it's on the website if you want to find it. And while the emphasis of my story has changed over the years, what I emphasize most now, thankfully, and who I exalt most now is Jesus rather than me. But without fail, there's a piece of my story, if you have heard it, that usually uh, people, but usually males, tend to ask me about. Generally, it is men wanting to find out the magic pill to find out how to abstain and defeat lust, especially on the internet. And while I had a lot of problems with this in the past, there isn't a magic pill, church, but there is a gracious and powerful God who gives us freedom by his word to know him and to embrace his grace rather than be enslaved to our desires and fetishes. But look at, his, look at his audience and how they, like the common person perhaps today, would probably deny that they needed to be freed from anything. Verse 33, they, the crowd, answered him, we are Abraham's descendants and have never been slaves of anyone. How can you say that we shall be set free? Jesus replied, very truly, I tell you, everyone who sins is a slave to sin. rut row. Now a slave has no permanent place in the family but a son belongs to it forever. So if the son sets you free, you are free indeed. So you see, we don't worship the Bible. And salvation is found in Jesus. But the Bible, the truth of the scriptures, God's word, his truth, is how we know anything about Jesus, about his gospel, about who God is and what God does. And holding to his teaching, hear me, holding to his teaching is not what saves you but it is what happens when he saves you. And so we preach the Bible because it sets one free when they grasp the author and the subject of the writings. And on top of that, like Peter the Apostle, when challenged by Jesus' word, after Jesus in John 6 called himself the bread of life, and then he says in order to be his disciple, he's using uh, an analogy, he said you would have to eat his body and drink his blood. Oh, Wow. Peter, when asked if he too would desert Jesus like the rest of the people, here's what happens. Verse, John chapter 6, verse 67, you do not want to leave too, do you? Jesus asked the twelve. Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. We have come to believe and to know that you are the Holy One of God. And I think that this altercation with Jesus, speaking about the truth of what it means to be his follower and what you would have to give up in order to follow Jesus, was too hard for most people. 
And yet Peter says that those who indwelled with the Holy Spirit would say, to whom would we go? You have the words of eternal life, Jesus. And I really hope that you don't, that you don't understand that this Bible, or let me say it this way, I hope that you don't think that this Bible is magical or something to be worshipped. But it is sacred. Because the very words and the will of God revealed in these pages not always obvious, not always black and white, but if you and I would pursue Jesus, we would pursue knowing him better through these very words written by the Spirit of God. We would know the Son of God far better than maybe we do today, not by accident or through happenstance, but through intentional effort that yearns to want God at his word. This is what David means when he is quoted as saying this in Psalm 119. Praise be to you, Lord. Teach me your decrees. With my lips I recount all the laws that come from your mouth. I rejoice in following your statutes. When was the last time any of us were like, Yay, Lord, for your rules. I rejoice in following your statutes as one rejoices in great riches. I meditate on your precepts and consider your ways. I delight in your decrees and I will not neglect your word. To delight in God's law is to understand that God gave us the law so that we wouldn't get dead. And since we all get dead, because we all sin, God said we could find life in his word by looking to the only one who would fulfill the law of God, which is himself, God with skin, Jesus Christ. So church, our goal when we teach is not that you would become puffed up with information like the annoying guy at a trivia night. Do you know these people? If you don't, you are them. But that you and I would see the word come alive in you and to you through the applying of the word of God to our lives. And we would see the fruit of the spirit growing each and every single one of us who have committed to following Jesus because where would we go in him are the words of eternal life. As the writer of Hebrews points out in Hebrews 4, for the word of God is alive and active, sharper than any double-edged sword. It penetrates even to dividing soul and spirit, joints and marrow. It judges the thoughts and attitudes of the heart. So why do we preach the Bible? Because it's all about Jesus. And we as a church are all about Jesus. And we want people to find life in his name through his word coming alive in our lives. But here's the second big point that we tend to have to deal with that I've personally had to deal with for the past six years that I've been here. The way we interpret scripture really, really matters. Why? Because human nature is to avoid conflict and to bend scripture to our own will and then look for God's will rather than to look for God's will that will contradict us. Paul says to Timothy in 2 Timothy chapter 4, he says, For the time will come when people will not put up with sound doctrine. Instead, to suit their own desires, they will gather around them a great number of teachers to say what their itching ears want to hear. They will turn their ears away from the truth and turn aside to myths. It's not like Paul guessed this and it happened. This has been happening ever since God gave us his will in the law. And I know this might surprise some of you. This is kind of sarcasm. 
but it's still happening today. In the churches, in churches everywhere, in the United States and outside of the United States, and this might be a little bit too much spilled tea for you. You might be like, oh, I just want to come to church and be encouraged. Well, we'll get there. But people bending scripture to to fulfill their will rather than what God actually says has actually happened here at Church of the Valley. Gasp. Where people who looked one way, said the right words, seemed to care and get the gospel, chose to turn aside to myths. They didn't like sound doctrine. They were offended by orthodoxy. They wanted new revelation and chose their preferences and opinions over what was taught in the scriptures. I learned a lot from that season of life. I think I probably was too quick to correct what was wrong, if if I want to confess something. I think I was way too quick to correct every time someone was wrong. Instead of focusing and emphasizing what was true and right. When those in the counterfeit units uh, portion of the U.S. government's agencies attempt to decipher a counterfeit, I don't know, $100 bill. Does anyone have a $100 bill that I can see? I'm just kidding. I don't want it. I don't want it. If, if they're trying to decipher a real $100 bill versus a counterfeit $100 bill, they don't attempt to learn all the tricks of the counterfeit ones. They focus their attention and time on the ones that are actually real. And so when one that is not legitimate comes across their desk and it is seen, they quickly can see the differences because they focused on the real one. And the same ought to be said about us as followers of Jesus. We ought to be so focused on God's word, so delighting in his law, so hungry to know God better than when someone attempts to claim or teach something that is not consistent with his will, found in his word, we ought to be able to tell the difference and even correct when necessary. Right before Paul gives Timothy this warning of those who will force the scriptures to say what they want, and will only listen to things that make them feel good about themselves. He gives this admonishment in 2 Timothy chapter 4, starting in verse 1. In the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who will judge the living and the dead, and in view of his appearing and his kingdom, I give you this charge. Preach the word. Be prepared in season and out of season. Correct, rebuke, and encourage with great patience and careful instruction. Now, Timothy, great name, was a pastor of a church in Ephesus. And while I can understand that this command may be specific to pastors in a sense, as ambassadors, which every person in this room today listening online who shares in Christ's suffering and resurrection, you are actually an ambassador for Christ. And this is a command that can apply to each and every Christian that calls on the name of the Lord. So brothers and sisters, fellow Christians, church of the living God, look at this command again. I'm going to read it again. You're going to hear it a few times. And think about how it applies to you. Verse 2, preach the word. Be prepared in season and out of season. Correct, rebuke, and encourage with great patience and careful instruction. He begins with preach the word. Proclaim the word. Maybe you'll never stand before a crowd of people. Perhaps you'll never write a sermon. Perhaps you'll never have to teach a passage formally. But as a believer, you and I do have a responsibility to teach what God has said in his word. 
maybe not every person every day at all times. Your barista doesn't need to know a Hebrew lesson on the book of Leviticus when she asks what size of your mocha frappuccino. But those you have a relationship with, those you have shared Christ with that want to know more, there is plenty more for them to know. Plenty more for us to share. Plenty more for us to preach, if you will, to teach with persuasion. But don't preach your preferences or your opinions. Preach the word, this word. Walk people through it. From perhaps one word in a passage that you're reading, all the way to an entire book of the Bible. There is so much to be found and read, read, and dissected and revealed if you look and try and read and apply. So he says, preach the word. Still verse 2, be prepared in season and out of season. Being prepared in season and out of season has far more to do with your time consistently in the word than your effectiveness. The fact is, if you're full of the word, if you're in this, if you're full of it, it will spill out of you. Not by just having a verse for everything, but by thinking biblically about God's heart for our fellow man, thinking biblically about our lifestyle and choices we make each day, thinking biblically about the big decisions we need to make in our lifetimes, thinking biblically about our marriages, thinking biblically about our singleness, thinking biblically about how to parent, thinking biblically about how to be parented, thinking biblically about how we spend our time and our money and our talents. So if you are continually walking in sin, church, that is obvious from his word, it's hard for anyone to take you seriously if you claim to know his word. You know what I'm saying? And thinking biblically is a gift from God that we don't have to make decisions blindly like so much of mankind has and does. And so if we are prepared in season and out of season, it basically means we're always prepared with God's word because God's word is what we're full of. So, verse 2, preach the word, be prepared in season and out of season, correct. <laughs> this is going to be fun. <sighs> For me as a pastor, correcting, unfortunately, is like a big part of what I do here. But also being correctable is what makes my correcting of others through the word of God possible in the first place. If I can't be corrected, then why should I expect others to hear my correction? Let me share one of my favorite Proverbs, but only because I believe I'm correctable. Proverbs 12.1. Whoever loves discipline loves knowledge, but whoever hates correction is stupid. <laughs> Pastor, I'm not stupid. You're stupid. Don't get mad at me. Get mad at God. Or Solomon, who wrote it through the work of the Spirit. The reality is that if you and I can never see someone another side of something if we are so sure of ourselves, if maybe we're so sure of our interpretation, then possibly we may think we are better than we ought. That only we can be true and right. I got to be honest, my interpretation of Scripture, or here's a bigger word for you Bible nerds. You ready, Mike? Daniel, you ready? My hermeneutics. My hermeneutics, my Bible interpretation, pretty basic 
and not like how the kids say basic. Like, it's just simple. Basic in the sense that I have a guideline when I read Scripture, and I, uh, this might offend some of you, I'm sorry, but it also may unlock the Scripture's meaning, and it may actually be uh, what the Scriptures mean if you look at it through this basic interpretation. Here it is. Dan, could you come up here and do a drum roll real quick? I'm just kidding. Here it is. It's super scandalous. It's super outside of the box. This book, this book, it's all about Jesus. It's all about his work on our behalf to make dead people alive because he died and rose again. This book, my hermeneutic, is that the gospel is the point and is the lens in which we read this book. I don't read it through a moralistic, deistic lens. It's crazy, right? Like, wow, scandalous. You read the Bible through Jesus as the point? Crazy. Well, perhaps you have been here long enough to know that that is how we read this book. And why we believe it in the first place is because our faith is built on a historical resurrection of Jesus. And if he can rise from the dead, if Jesus, think about this, if Jesus can rise from the dead, God can be real. And if God is real, he can write a book that we believe reads us even more than we read it. And it teaches us about who? About him. And it teaches us about us. And it teaches us that we have a spiritual deficit and we need a savior. And if I need a savior, I am not self-sufficient. And I am in need. And if I am in need, I probably need to be corrected once in a while. And so perhaps you're perfect, but I'm really sorry to let you know that the pastor of this church needs grace and correction sometimes. And I am grateful for elders and leaders who love me enough to speak into my life while also humble enough to allow me to do the same with the will of God revealed in the word of God as the way in which correction takes place. So believers, if you are an identified Christian, be in each other's lives. So when correction takes place, it isn't, be, it, it isn't because some stranger had to wield their heavy King James Bible at you, but rather in community, we love and care for one another through correction when necessary. Last thing I'll say about this. Being prepared in season and out of season, season regarding correction through the word is far more important than your effectiveness or your quota of correction. Please don't hear what I'm saying as a license to tell everyone how they're doing the Bible wrong. We're all doing it wrong. But apply what Paul is telling Timothy by being more in the word, not to justify yourself, but to know God better. All right, again, verse two, preach the word. Be prepared in season and out of season. Correct, rebuke, and encourage with great patience and careful instruction. Now, you may hear rebuke and just think correction, but they are different. And well, unfortunately, many Christians and leaders think that because they are different, they can be applied differently. When I think of a re rebuke, the way I hear it used is like, oh man, that dude rebuked me, or I had to rebuke them. It sounds a whole heck of a lot like Hold on, I actually have a visual example, and I never have this. This is for Mike. When you say, I had to rebuke them, it sounds a whole heck of a lot like, 
a sledgehammer. Thanks, Hiram, for letting me borrow it. I didn't have one. <laughs> and while rebuking has to do with sin, internally or externally, it does not have to be applied as a sledgehammer. In fact, as we have read many times, and we're about to get to, Paul says, with great patience and careful instruction. It doesn't sound like a sledgehammer. That sounds like this ought to be thought through. This ought to be prayed through. It's a careful interaction while still being a rebuke. I have this mentor. I have this mentor that for years would correct me biblically. And I didn't always like it, but I respected it. And I respected him. I'm going to leave that there. And I learned from him how to correct graciously. I don't always do it right, but I did learn, and I saw what it means to correct someone graciously. But what I didn't realize was that some of those times he was correcting me, he actually was rebuking me. Not about my biblical interpretation, but about my behavior. And I didn't even know I was being rebuked because he never raised his voice. He never made me feel less than. He just pointed me to the word and what God says to do while also what Christ is like. That, in my opinion, in a human sense, was a biblical example of what Paul means here regarding rebuking with great patience and careful instruction. And honestly, if you like to rebuke people, which <laughs> I think there was a time I kind of was a little bit too into it, it was because I like to feel better then. It's because I like to be right. And when we biblically rebuke someone, it ought to be for their and the body of Christ's good. That's why we would rebuke someone. For their good and for the body of Christ's good. Not our ego or our self-exaltation. But the reality is that if you are in relationship with other believers rebuking might have to happen. Uh oh Not because God needs to fix someone's morality, but because God wants to grow both you and that person who you've been uniquely connected to in order to rebuke. Look at Jesus' way of caring for one another when someone is enslaved in their sin within a church community. Here's Matthew 18, which many of you know as Matthew 18. Here's what it says, starting in verse 15. If your brother or sister sins, a believer, if another believer, not, not your actual physical share your room brother or sister, if another believer in your community sins, go and point out their fault just between the two of you. If they listen to you, you have won them over. Cool, let's just finish there. That sounds great. But if they do not listen, rah, take one or two others along. Oh, no so that every matter may be established by the testimony of two or three witnesses. If they still refuse to listen, tell it to the church, not the steeple. You don't go talk to a wall, the people. And if they refuse to listen even to the church, treat them as you would a pagan or a tax collector. Seems kind of harsh. These are Jesus' words for the record. But it's not harsh. It's an opportunity for restoration. It's an opportunity for the community to care about somebody. It's an opportunity for the humility to grow. And while I've seen this work, it does work sometimes. I've had brothers and sisters come to me, point out my error, 
and vice versa. I've also seen people go from step one to step two to step three, and there has been no repentance. And let's be real, it's normally step one and then they leave. Let's just be real about this. But there has been no repentance, no change of direction, and honestly, people who tend to accelerate the process tend to take others down with them. All in pride and all in an unwillingness to see anything else from God's word than what they want to see. It's sad. It's anxiety-producing. It's part of God's pruning process of sanctifying his church and pruning those who would prefer not to be overruled by God and his word. So we have talked about preaching the word, being prepared in and out of season, correcting and rebuking. And let me take you to what I think in contrast, but also in context, is the best part of the charge to Timothy from Paul. Preach the word, be prepared in season and out of season, correct, rebuke, and encourage. The word, the Bible, is a vessel for encouragement. I love this. I love to do this. I love to tell people how I have seen God use them, grow them, transform them. It is literally the best part of my job as a pastor is to know many of you. And over time, see God's fingerprints on your lives. So Laura, I'm going to ask you to do something real quick. Could you turn the lights on? Turn them back after I say, but can you turn them up? Because I literally cannot see people. Bless you. Hey, that's what lights look like. Everyone's so pretty. I look at you, and I know many of you. And I know the word of God points towards encouragement. And I've gotten to know many of you, and I use Laura as an example. This woman has grown. I have known her since she was a little, not a little girl. I've known her since she was a little college student. And I've seen her grow and care about the gospel and care for many of you and serve in many different ways. I've watched Naomi grow literally since she was a little girl, and now she's going off to college. And I've seen her as one of the most caring little girls and now young ladies that I've ever known, and she cares about people and she likes Fords. Amen. (laughs) Eric Kreiser is one of my closest friends. I don't know if he knows that. Surprise. (laughs) And as I've gotten to know Eric, him and I not only go places, maybe it says we're not supposed to go, um, but we just really enjoy one another's company, and he's so thoughtful, and he's so caring. And from the time I first met him to today, I've just seen a man change by the work of the Spirit in his life. Brittany Franco puts up with James Franco. (laughs) No, James is amazing, but Brittany loves the Lord. She loves the gospel. She loves her family well. And she cares about the gospel being preached and the truth being true, both in her neighborhood, in her household, and to the ends of the earth. I love Hiram and Chris and David. I don't know if you know them, but they're my next-door neighbors. And it's hard to live next to people that go to your church (laughs) when you're the pastor. But they are so gracious, and they are so loving. And they care about people. And I think that's a work of God in their lives. Larry Frederick, oh man, man. You just ask Larry, hey, tell me about something. And he will talk your ear off in a good way. But he loves the Lord. And he loves his wife. And he loves his family. And he cares for these people. Why? Because the Holy Spirit indwells him. (sighs) 
The word encourages us and it calls us to encourage one another and encourage one another with the truth of the gospel. Jenny Trin, who's serving in children's ministry. I don't know that for a fact today, but she serves in children's ministry a lot. She's not in the back, is she? Because I'm talking about her. She, perfect! She's in children's ministry. She serves and cares and loves those kids and she loves kids that aren't her own, which is amazing, but also she loves the youth of this church. Have you met the youth of, no, they're great, I'm just kidding, but like, they're, but Jenny loves them, and she cares for them, and here's what I know about Jenny, she prays for them without fail. Okay, Laura, you can turn the lights back down, because everyone feels exposed. The word can encourage. It should encourage. It should remind us and point us to our relationship with God and the progression that continues as we pursue Christ and the Holy Spirit sanctifies and transforms us more into the image of Christ while not quick, usually. <laughs> it is progressive and tangible and beautiful. Every person that I just spoke of, I've known for a while. And I've watched God do a work in their lives. And it is beautiful and it is being under the word of God and trusting God at his word and applying his word that makes a big difference in our life. And so we encourage, we correct, and we even rebuke. And we are to do this with great patience, knowing that people do not always get it instantly and do not progress quickly. And we proclaim the word with careful instruction, knowing that teaching the truth of the word can introduce people to our God, and it can help others know him better. And this is a big, important, vital responsibility that is not just for the pastor, but for each and every person who identifies with Jesus' life, death, and resurrection. So we proclaim the word here at COV. That is what we study. That is what we proclaim through the gospel message as our lens for how we interpret the entire book of Scripture, and in a corporate sense, I don't do that alone. I get to do that with a team, a teaching team of godly men and women who do not attempt to usurp authority from the elders collectively, even though some of the teachers in the church are some of the elders, or attempt to teach anything above and beyond what the Scriptures say. So because the staff wasn't busy enough, the teaching team wasn't busy enough, I asked Laura to make a video. And I would like you to see the COV teaching team, excluding me, answer a few questions regarding what it's like to preach here at Church of the Valley. Eliza, if you would play that. What's been your biggest takeaway by preaching to COV? Biggest takeaway? I think it's that I need to pay more attention. Um, when I'm preparing for teaching on a Sunday, uh, I feel like I read it different, you know? Like, I pay more attention to what it says, I think about it more, I pray about it more, meditate on it, and um, I should be doing that all the time. Uh, God always shows up, so He always shows up in the process as I'm writing or as I'm like researching and doing stuff. Preaching and teaching is a very humbling experience. The lessons that I get to learn before the Lord provides an opportunity for me to teach them at COV. There's been so many times where I have been struggling with something or the Lord's been 
teaching me something through scripture and I get to eventually, oftentimes pretty quickly, turn around and get to teach that to COV. My brain doesn't work the same way as everybody else's necessarily. And so as I prepare to preach, I have to remember uh, that I have to express things differently than I might normally do. I might have to use different illustrations than the ones that light up for me. And if you say, Mike, you still use a lot of illustrations that mean nothing to me, all I can say is, I'm a work in progress, God is good, and we'll just keep going. What is your biggest fear when teaching on a Sunday? My biggest fear is teaching the word incorrectly. I don't want to mishandle God's word. I want to make sure that I'm not mishandling the text. For me, I really want to handle God's word with care. Um, I want to interpret things properly. I want to know the context. I want to be able to convey exactly what the author is trying to convey. The gravity of like teaching the Word of God and not saying the wrong thing, leading people away from how God really is, uh, injecting what I think and not what the text says. I think there's like such a level of responsibility that I hold with bringing the truth of the scripture to people and I don't want to get it wrong and lead someone astray. What would you like to see happen in the people of COV as we teach them each week through the Bible? The main thing I want to see happen as we teach people here at Church of the Valley through the Bible is that uh, they would apply exactly what they're learning. I would love to see people see and hear and taste and feel that uh, God breathed into the text and whatever we add or explain from it, the, the, the good stuff is in the text and it's God speaking to us and we, by the power of the Holy Spirit, can understand what he's saying and therefore more who he is. I think I want to see the people at COV grow spiritually and become really on fire for the Lord. Um, not because we're so great at teaching, but because the Lord is faithful. I hope that people get to know God a little bit better. And as they get to know Him a little bit better, that they trust Him more. And that has impact on the, how they live throughout the rest of the week. And I pray for heart transformation. Because really, God working on our hearts, like our desires, the things we long for, and things like that is going to have far more impact than just something behavioral or a shift in maybe what I do. <laughs> Great job, Laura. I really like that Laura asked the question and then answered it herself in the video. That was, that was awesome. And I brought the sledgehammer back because when else am I going to have a sledgehammer up here? I am so grateful for this teaching team. I truly am, who shoulder the responsibility alongside me to preach the word corporately each week to us here at COV, and I have watched each one of these communicators fall deeper in love with God through the text. And we all have benefited from God growing each one of them as we sit under their teaching of the word. All of what we have said today is because of the word. As we know it, the Bible, the collective writings of 40 different authors over 1,500 years in three different languages were all inspired and compelled by the Holy Spirit to write what we now have that is canonized or collected together in the Holy Scriptures, the Bible. And as Paul told Timothy earlier in his letter, 
chapter 3, verse 16. I've kind of gone backwards in Timothy, like the movie Memento. Anyone? Anyone? Yep. All Scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, for rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness. All of Scripture that you can hold in your hands is God-breathed from the mind of God, written by the Spirit of God, revealing the will of God to exalt the Son of God. And that is why we proclaim this book over any other written book or supposed sacred writings. So the what of what we teach is the Bible. And why of why we teach it is because it reveals the will of God. The who of the Bible is in three persons, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, one God, three persons, and his people being redeemed throughout history by the plan of God through the work of his Son. The how of the word is that each one of the letters, while written at different times and in some cases different languages, Tell one consistent story put together of mankind's need of a Savior, and that Savior died and rose again. And what Paul says to Timothy, while under the influence of the Holy Spirit, is that the Word of God is useful for teaching, which we have covered, for rebuking, which we have covered, for correcting, which we have covered, and training in righteousness. This book is our only option to be trained in our sonship, to be trained in how we live out our salvation. This book is to help us know how to find our identity in Christ. And it prescribes that we continue in our placing of our identity in Christ in all circumstances through thinking biblically and being full of this book. Not to be puffed up with knowledge, but to exercise our faith through trusting God at his word. So the last part of that verse that I'm going to teach, verse 17, why is the scripture God breathed and useful for these things? So that the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. This is what we do here. This is what we pray for. This is the motivation and application that is applied. We want each and every one of us who identify with Jesus' finished work on the cross and victorious resurrection from the dead to thoroughly be equipped for every good work. Not to make us do-gooders, but to make our faith tangible to the outside world out of love for God in response to his love for us. Matthew 5, 16, Jesus says, In the same way, let your light shine before others that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. Our good deeds, our good works, do not justify us. But they are simply our response to God's love and his gift in grace. And so is our faith, and we get to have a physical response by trusting him at his word. So church, I got an ask for you. Here's, here's my big ask. Here's my application. You ready? If you are committed here at COV, I don't know why I keep touching that. It's just fun. <clears throat> yeah, actually, as I do the application, this makes sense. If, <laughs> if you are committed here at COV, pick up this book. Not mine physically, like it's mine. Pick up the Bible. Read this book. Talk about this book. Apply this book. Study this book. Not because the book ought to be worshipped, but the author and the point of the book is our Savior, Jesus, and he deserves to be worshipped, and it teaches us how in here. 
I'm going to lead, end with this verse. Worship team, come on up. Two verses. John chapter 1, verse 1 and verse 14. John, the disciple whom Jesus loves, begins his letter and he says, In the beginning was the Word, capital W, Logos, the truth. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Verse 14, he gets to his point. The Word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only Son who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. We care about what God says. We don't try to justify ourselves by reading this, but we care about it because it reveals the Son of God so we can know him and we can worship him. So let's get in this book, church. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this morning. We thank you for your word. We thank you for the opportunity we have to just brag on how great it is. We thank you that you would reveal your will to us. We do not deserve to know you, and yet you and your grace have saved so many of us. And so, God, we pray that we'd be people that if we're yet to know you, we'd bow a knee and turn to you. And if we are knowing you, but maybe we're lethargic or lacking passion, God, I pray that your spirit would reveal in us the want and the need and the faith to trust you at your word each day, and would you change our lives for your glory. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.